Good morning again. You should be ready now. Pastor Brady warmed you up, so I'm going to say he is risen. And wherever you are at home with friends, neighbors, family members, I want you to say he is risen indeed. All right, so I'm going to say he is risen, and you're going to say he is risen indeed. I want to hear every voice. I'm listening, okay? Ready? He is risen. All right, that was kind of weak. I noticed a couple of you guys weren't doing it. All right, I'm going to try one more time, all right? He is risen. He is risen indeed. All right, amen. It's true. It's true. Uh, and, and this is a unique Easter for us, I admit. We can't gather, but we can still worship, can't we? We can still worship a risen Savior. We can still celebrate the empty tomb. And so I just want to thank every one of you for joining us for our service today. Maybe a family member or a friend invited you or sent you the link, uh, and maybe you haven't been to church in a while, but you were willing to join in online. I am so glad you joined us today for this service. I want to extend a special welcome to those of you, because we've noticed the last couple of weeks that we've had people not just in this country, but from all over the world, from various countries. So if you are joining us from another country, I want to offer you a special welcome uh, from a Spanish-speaking country, Bienvenido, uh, an Arabic-speaking country, Ahlan Wasahlan. Those are the only languages I know. Sorry. So I am glad you are here. Uh, and then to my Grace family. I know I say this often, but I feel it deeper than ever. I want you to hear me. I love you immensely. We as your pastors love you dearly, and we miss you, and we can't wait to see your faces again, and we can't wait to worship with you right here. Uh, that day is coming. We know it. It is going to come, and we will wait with great anticipation and hope. There's a word that is being used quite a bit these days to describe what our world is going through. You hear it on the news, you read it in the papers, on the internet, every local leader, every national leader is saying it, all the pundits, there's a, it's a word that people are just, it's, it's being repeated over and over again, and the word is this, unprecedented, unprecedented. What we are experiencing with the spread of this pandemic and the impact of COVID-19 illness is, is unprecedented. The word means never happened before, nothing like it. Something like this has never happened, certainly in our lifetime. The sheer number of people affected by the virus is staggering and it's heartbreaking. Not only that, the virus has upended everything about our lives. Schools are closed, church, church buildings are closed, stores are closed. You're not able to go out to your favorite restaurant anymore. Billions of people around the world are on lockdown. How we interact is different. We, we can't hug or shake hands with people anymore. There's new terms that are popping up like social distancing, which is driving people like me crazy, by the way. I know some of you who are maybe more introverted are thinking, this is the kind of thing I've been dreaming about my entire life. Well, good for you. Here's the thing. The pandemic, this pandemic has nearly changed everything about how we live. But the other thing about this crisis is that, that's worth noting is the sheer speed at which things have changed. In mid-February, would any of you have thought 
you know, a month from now, I, 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 would, I could foresee a scenario where I'd be homeschooling my kids with just a few days' notice, uh, where I'll have to work from home, and I won't be allowed out of my house except to get what I need to survive, and then, only then, with a mask on. Anyone think, yep, that's the reason why I can see that happening? No! None of us thought that, and yet here we are, because this virus has upended our world both dr- dr- drastically and quickly. That's what has made it unprecedented. And as I was thinking and preparing this week, I realized that what we are experiencing is incredibly similar to what the disciples experienced 2,000 years ago. You see, when Jesus entered his public ministry, he quickly gained a large following. He taught with great authority. Uh, he performed all kinds of miracles to prove that he, that he is God in the flesh. He proved his deity. He, he calmed storms and he, and he multiplied food and he healed the sick and even raised people from the dead. And, and he did it to prove, I am not just a prophet. I am not just a great teacher. I am God in the flesh. And then on Palm Sunday, as we, as we celebrated last week, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey with people waving palm branches and, and crying out, Hosanna to the King! They thought Jesus would liberate the Jewish people from Roman tyranny, that he would exert his power and rule as the conquering King. And hopes were running high as they celebrated the coming of the Messiah, which had been anticipated for thousands and thousands of years. And instead, Jesus ends up being arrested five days later on bogus charges, beaten and sentenced to death, and crucified on a cruel cross. You see, in just a moment, everything changed. Jesus is dead. The king is dead. And for three days, the disciples were sheltering in place, afraid to go out. They were socially isolated. They were grief-stricken. They were overwhelmed by how the events that, that happened just totally changed their lives both drastically and quickly. The similarities are striking, aren't they? But what happened on that Sunday morning, what happened on that Sunday morning after Jesus died was going to totally transform their lives. It was almost like a boomerang effect. Their lives were upended and then upended again. And they didn't have any category for it. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is the only thing in history that is truly unprecedented. Yes, coronavirus has done things that that we've never seen before, but there is something that happened in history that truly never happened before and has not happened since, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to show you how the resurrection changes everything. Everything. Everything, everything. Everything. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. If you have a Bible in front of you, grab a Bible. If it's on your iPad or phone, I want you to see I'm not making this up. This comes from one of the Gospels, one of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, the end of the book of Matthew. Kids, if you're watching, 
You don't have paper out yet? Grab a piece of paper. To ask mom or dad to grab a piece of paper. You can start drawing a picture as you see this picture of, of the empty tomb of an angel there and the stone rolled away. Matthew chapter 28 says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. When they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests what had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while... We were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's Word. I want to share three lessons drawn from this text about the resurrection. Lesson number one, the resurrection is a historical fact. The resurrection is a historical fact. You see, if I claim that the resurrection changes everything, one of the first things that I need to do is show you that it is true, that it actually happened. If the resurrection of Jesus is a myth or legend, then it has no right, it has no power to change everything. Did this actually happen? We have to ask this question because many people today are skeptical of, of its historicity, whether it actually happened in history. And given the fact of its miraculous nature, that's, that makes sense. It's understandable. But I'd like to ask you this morning, no matter where you are, no matter what your background is, I'd like to ask you to seriously consider the evidence for the resurrection because Christianity holds that the death and resurrection of Jesus are what make anything about Christianity worth believing and following. 
As Bryce said earlier, the resurrection is the hinge. If there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity. Here's what we see in verse 1. We see that the women go to the tomb of Jesus. Notice, they went to see the tomb. In other words, they went expecting to see his dead body. The other gospel writers tell us that they brought perfume with them to anoint his body. It's like what we do today when we take flowers to a, to, to a grave. Uh, it was their way of paying respects. That's what they were going to do, to pay respects to the dead body of Jesus. They were going to see his dead body. And that's why the angel says to them, I know you seek Jesus who was crucified, but he's risen. He's not here. They didn't expect the resurrection. And what this tells us is that these women had mistaken Jesus to be like the founder of every other religion. Every other founder of a major religion in our world is dead. And so if you want to seek them, you have to read their writings, you have to follow their teachings, or you have to either go visit their tomb. And millions of people do that in various faith traditions. But here's what you need to understand. If you treat Jesus like he was like every other religious leader, just a brilliant and inspirational teacher, then you'll never find him. You'll miss him. Some of you would say, I believe in Jesus' teaching. I believe they're inspirational. I, I try to live by the golden rule. I, I try to follow, you know, the, the morals of the Bible. But I can't believe in the primitive idea that he actually rose from the dead. You might even argue that, that people back then are simple-minded, right? This is a long time ago, and that's why they could believe something so fanciful. But, but not me. I'm educated. I'm a modern person. You know what C.S. Lewis, who was a brilliant scholar at Oxford, he said that's called chronological snobbery. When we think we know better than people who lived in history— to think that we're smarter or more sophisticated. Listen, no evidence has shown that IQs have gotten any higher over the centuries. You could argue it's the opposite. I don't know. But here's the irony. Matthew is telling this account to an audience that is just as skeptical about the resurrection as we are. You see, here's the fact of the matter. It has always been difficult to accept the resurrection of Jesus. No matter what time period you live in, from the first people who saw him till now. Today, we tend to be skeptical about the resurrection because of scientific objections. Our culture tends to not believe in miracles. Back then, their skepticism was rooted in the belief that the physical world is evil. You see, they would, if they were here today and, they, and we told them we don't believe in miracles, they would laugh at us. They would be like, that's silly. And so when we think, oh, you think the world is evil, the physical world is evil, that's silly, ha ha. You see that? It's, it's not that we're more sophisticated, it's just that we're different. We have different, different cultural norms. Back then, to say that God would come to earth as a man, would die, and then come back in person, would have been preposterous. It would have been ridiculous. Not only that, look what it says in verse 15. It says that a false story about the disciples stealing the body actually spread very soon after the resurrection. He says this, this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This gospel account, Matthew, was written about 30 years after these events. 
So within the same lifetime of the people who saw Jesus raised, all the Gospels were written within the same, uh, same time period. Paul's letter to the, to the Corinthians, the first Corinthians, was written about 15 years after the events. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrected Jesus appeared to various groups of people, and he names a bunch of them. And then Paul says this in verse 6, that he appeared to more than 500 people at the same time, many of whom are still alive. You catch that? His point is that the readers, the, the original readers of the letter to the Corinth church, they could go to those people that he named, go to a number one of these 500 people and ask them, is it true? Did Jesus rise from the dead? And if it was true, they would confirm it. And if it wasn't true, all these people would be like, that never happened. I never claimed to see him. And this thing would have never gotten off the ground. This is serious. News matters, doesn't it? We know that today more than ever. We need to know what is true. And yes, there's plenty of fake news out there today. But sadly, you know what people often do? Because there's so much fake news, what people often do is they'll often claim something is fake news as a way of distracting you from considering the evidence. Here's the point. These Gospels... And 1 Corinthians, the letter that Paul wrote, are written within the lifetime of those who were there. They were eyewitness accounts. And that's incredibly compelling evidence. But that's not all we have. Nearly every scholar, secular or religious, agree. Everyone, almost everyone, anyone who's not crazy would say, they all agree. There's a man named Jesus of Nazareth who lived, who was crucified by the Romans on a cross, and on the third day, his tomb was found to be empty. Historians, even from this time period, Josephus and others, Pliny, uh, the younger, all of Seleucus, they all, they all agree that, that his tomb was found to be empty. So the fact that the tomb was empty is, is compelling evidence. They've never found the body. And nobody debates whether the tomb is empty. The only thing that people debate is, how did it get empty? That's what the debate is. And some say the Jews stole the body. But if they did it, which they don't have motive to do it, and the news of the resurrection spread, that all they would have to do is produce the body and it would have squelched the movement. Why would they steal the body? But some say, well, the disciples stole the body. That's what, that's what, what the rumor they spread because they had motive. They could then claim he rose from the dead. But listen, do you think that these disciples who were so cowardly that they fled when Jesus was arrested, that they fled for their lives, that they were afraid that they too would get, would get involved in this, this, this death of Jesus and, and, get, and get overtaken and, and maybe even kill themselves. Do you think all of a sudden they got the, the kind of courage it needed to go to these Roman guards who stood guard over the tomb and beat him up and, and rolled the stone away and then claimed, ha ha, we have, we have his body stolen and claimed he rose from the dead. And then all of a sudden, they all lived sacrificial lives, and most of them were martyred for the faith. Is that what we think is the most plausible explanation? No. Matthew gives us another piece of evidence that may be the best, maybe the most compelling, very powerful. Verse 1, notice he says, not just that women went, he names them. 
On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Every single gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all tell us that women, and they name them, were the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. They were the first eyewitnesses of Jesus raised from the dead. And that is astounding because in this day, and back in Jesus' day, women were sadly marginalized in society, so much so that their testimony in court was, was, had almost no weight. It, would never, it, it didn't count. And so if the gospel writers were making this thing up in the hopes of launching a new religious movement, they would have never made up this detail that women were the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb because it never would have passed the litmus test of plausibility. Never. People back then would have read it and laughed at it and scoffed at it. Nope. Nope. You're trying to start a new religion? This isn't the way to do it. The only way that it makes sense is if women were actually the first people to see the empty tomb. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are saying, look, I don't care what you think. I'm just reporting the facts. The resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. Have you wrestled with that today? Can I ask you, have you considered the evidence on its own terms? Or do you get your information from things like the Da Vinci Code or the History Channel? Listen, I know you still have questions. I do too. Maybe you have questions like, well, why is the world so messed up? Why did my life turn out the way it did? Why are there so many religions? I I get it. Those are legitimate questions. But here's what I need you to understand. Faith is not having all of your questions answered. One pastor, he gave a definition, one good definition of faith. He said this, faith occurs when the unexplainable confronts the undeniable. Faith is wrestling with the unexplainable in light of the undeniable evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead. Are you willing to wrestle with that? Are you willing to to, to give it another look, to consider the evidence that the resurrection is a historical fact? Lesson number two. The resurrection changes your life now. Right now, here on earth. There are good reasons for believing the resurrection. But even if it did happen, we still have to understand it's not just an isolated event in history. For instance, if I say that George Washington was the first president of the United States, it's true. Do you believe that? I I hope you do. It's, It's historically true. But does that fact have any real daily impact on your life? Does it change how you make decisions and how you think and feel and, and how you relate to people? No, and he was, you know, he's a wonderful guy, and that's great that he's the first president. I read a biography about him last year. That's great. He had his flaws, but he's a you know, great president. But it doesn't, it doesn't change my life, really. You see, the resurrection cannot just be believed. It must also be shown that it can change everything about how you live. When the women realize that it's true, that Jesus was raised from the dead. When the angel uh, announces it, when they see the empty tomb themselves, they run and it says, they departed quickly from the tomb, notice, with fear and great joy. I love that. Fear and great joy. Fear, because if Jesus was resurrected, 
then he's not just some religious leader who taught good things and helped people live better lives. Fear because he's, he's the son of God, just as he claimed that he is the creator of heaven and earth who came down. Fear because Jesus is God in the flesh. There was an awe of him, but also great joy. Great joy because if Jesus was resurrected, then that means God came to earth not to condemn and destroy people, but to save and restore people. He came to right every wrong and to calm every fear. And then when Jesus appeared to them, notice it says, verse 9, he appeared to all of them and said, Greetings! And then what did they do? After seeing him, after touching him, it says they fell to his feet and worshipped. They realized that Jesus had conquered death, that his power is greater than the grave, that his love is greater than their sin, and that he was worthy of their allegiance. You see, it's changing them. His resurrection is changing them. Not only that, notice how at the end of the chapter, what Christians call the Great Commission, verses 18 to 20. Jesus calls the disciples. He gathers them up and he says, I'm, gonna, I'm sending you out to take the message of my death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. I'm sending you out to all nations. Remember, this is the group of men who deserted Jesus when he needed them most. They were utter failures. Jesus could have said, I'm starting over with new people. Sorry guys, you had your chance, but you blew it. But he doesn't do that. Jesus says, you are the very people who are going to tell the world who I am and what I've done in my dying and my rising. You see what Jesus is doing? He's forgiving and restoring them to right relationship with him. He's showing them grace, transforming grace, grace that changes them. The word grace in the Bible means giving something, giving someone something they don't deserve. Quick example, and we've used this here before. Let's just say Pastor Brady was um, sort of disgruntled with me. Maybe I'm not a great person to work with, and I, I annoy him, and I bother him, and probably these things are all true. But let's just say that he comes to my house, and he's so frustrated with me that he throws a rock through my window. I know you're saying you, you could never see Pastor Brady doing that. That's good, good. Just an example. But let's just say he does that, does that and he breaks my window. And I come out and say, what's going on? And he comes with a sense and realizes, ah, I shouldn't have done that. I'm so sorry. Okay, but you wronged me. He's wronged me. And so there's two options here. Either he fixes my window, he pays for it, or, and that's justice, right? He'd be doing the right thing of making it right, or I pay for the window. I can offer him grace and say, you know what? I, I love you, Brady. I care about you. I'm so sorry for whatever's happened, but I'll pay for the window. I'll pay to fix it. That's justice too. I'm righting the wrong, but I'm doing it even though I'm the one who's wronged. Someone can't go, someone else can't come along and be like, hey, I'll pay for your window. No, you have nothing to do with this. This is me and him. You say, how could Jesus forgive them and restore them? How could he do that? There's only one way to do it, and that's through the cross. Only on the cross. 
The only way for God to give you and I forgiveness and restoration and peace and hope and life after death, all the things that you and I don't deserve, is for God the Father to give Jesus everything that he doesn't deserve. Jesus never sinned. He healed people. He loved outcasts. And where did he end up? On a cross. Why did he have to die? The angel said, you're seeking Jesus who was crucified. Why? The reason is because ever since the beginning of time, ever since the first humans lived, every one of us has chosen to live for the glory of creation rather than the glory of God. We value things in creation more than we value God. We all have this bent in our hearts, whether you're Christian or not. Every human on the planet has this bent towards rejecting God and wanting something else to be our God, wanting something else to be our highest value, or we want ourselves to be God. We don't want someone else telling us what to do and how to live. I want to do, I want to do what I want to do with my money, with my sexuality, with my relationships, with my life, God. I don't need anybody else. I can be in charge. I can do whatever I want. That's our way of rejecting God. That's us throwing a rock into God's window. In fact, we don't just throw one. We do it, we do it every day, all day as we reject him. It's us shaming God. And our sin, our guilt, our wrongdoing to God leads to death. The punishment for our sin is death. Eternal separation from God in hell. Now if you say, listen, that, that sounds too drastic, Mark. That's because you cannot fathom the infinite holiness of God compared to the depth of your sin against that holy God. You see, the greater the authority, the greater the punishment. If I steal a pack of gum from a grocery store, that's theft, and there's one kind of punishment for that. But if I steal secrets from the United States government and sell them to another government, there's a much greater punishment for that. Why? Because the greater the authority, the greater the punishment. You see, the only way for us to be brought back to God, the only way for God to bring us back into right relationship with himself is for either us to take the punishment, for throwing the rocks at his house, or for him and only he could do it. Only he could do it fully for every human alive. And that's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came down from his glory in heaven. He lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived but never could. He went to the cross and God exchanged his perfect life for my sinful life. Jesus took my sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He became sin who knew no sin. Verse 21, sorry so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus takes our sin, and I take his righteousness. It's the great exchange. Jesus had to die for you, meaning that you can't live a good enough life, and you can't follow Jesus' teaching enough to say, I'm good enough to go to heaven. I've, done, I've followed your teachings good enough. I, my good outweighs my bad. No, you can, you can have a lot of good, but if you've thrown any rocks at God's windows, you're, you're, there's judgment, there's punishment, there's consequences, there's justice. And Jesus paid the ultimate penalty. He took that justice. But here's the thing, if Jesus stayed dead, he would be like every other religious leader that's ever lived. Like Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or any other religious leader. John Smith, all of them are dead. 
And you know, when a criminal goes to jail and they complete the sentence, the law has no more claim on them and they are, they are able to walk free. That's how the law works. You pay the punishment for the crime and once you pay the, the punishment, you get to go free. That's how the law works. Listen, Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins and that, that penalty was death, ultimate death, separation from, from God and he experienced it on the cross. He died utterly alone and he satisfied the sentence completely. And then early on that Sunday morning, on that first Easter morning, he walked out of the tomb alive, conquering sin and death. And we sang, uh, Bryce sang, is he worthy? Is there anyone worthy? Is there anyone whole? And the answer is a resounding yes, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain and who conquered the grave. It's God's way of saying, Jesus his sacrifice was accepted and it was total and complete. Sin was paid for totally. And for those who now accept Jesus by faith, the resurrection is God's way of declaring paid in full. And it's only because Jesus walked out of the grave alive that God can say to those disciples and God can say to you and I today, I have the power not just to forgive you, but I have the power to restore you and to even send you out to change your whole life. The resurrection changes our lives now. Listen, if Jesus is raised from the dead, that means sin doesn't have the final say in our lives. Without Christ, we stand condemned. But in Christ, Romans 8.1, there's now no condemnation. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. Some of you still have guilt for what you've done. Some of you are still carrying around the shame. And Jesus on the cross and his resurrection declares to you, paid in full. I took it all. You don't carry it any longer. He wipes the slate clean because he took it himself. Number, the empty tomb also means that suffering doesn't have the final say. I don't know what you've been through. Maybe COVID-19 or cancer or diabetes or divorce or depression or something else has ravished your life or your family. Maybe you lost a loved one. My dad died when I was 14 years old. The resurrection proves that suffering and death do not have the final say in our lives. If God can bring good out of the greatest evil in history, if the death of Jesus brings about the saving of, of, of humanity who will trust in him, if he can bring so much good out of so much evil, that shows God can redeem every one of our sufferings as well. You see, the resurrection changes how we live now. And thirdly, finally, the resurrection changes your life forever. Notice the final words of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. As he sends the disciples out to do something that is impossible, to do something that they don't know it now, but will cost them all of all them their lives. Peter was crucified upside down. Notice what he says. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus says he will be with you to the end. I've been saying this over and over the last few weeks. 
that if this coronavirus has taught us anything, it's taught us this, that we are not in control of our lives. We think we are. We want to hold on to this false assurance that we're in control. But what this virus has done is that it has exposed how little control we have. The most heart-wrenching part of this pandemic is that it has taken now over 100,000 lives globally. This virus is exposing us to our mortality like nothing we have ever experienced in our lifetime. And it's unnerving to us, isn't it? The reality that most of us don't want to talk about, but we all know is true, is this. One day, you are going to die. Then what? Then what? I don't know if you've ever been with someone who is dying or who has died. But it is sad and it is sobering. And I've seen it in person dozens of times. I did a funeral just on Thursday afternoon. And we were at a gravesite. And, and the family was there and we stayed. And we watched as the casket was, was lowered into the ground. Death is very real to me. I have seen death rip families apart. I've seen it erupt, uh, interrupt lives. I've seen it, it feels so final. Without the hope of the resurrection, there is only despair. And that was the position of a philosopher who had, who had a lot of intellectual integrity, Bertrand Russell, who was a, um, an atheistic philosopher and he wrote this he wrote why i am not a christian and in that piece of work he said this as he neared his death quote the darkness that i have always feared is finally overtaking me what are you going to hope in when death finally overtakes you if you believe this world is all there is and that when you die, you just rot, then this is a pitiful existence. If that's all Christianity taught, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, then, then we are to be, as Christians, we're to be pitied more than anybody else in the world. If, if we just live our lives here, and then whatever happens, happens, and survival the fittest, and then we die, and then we go to the ground, listen, might as well, dog eat dog, might as well step on each other, might as well do all you can, gain as much as you can, and be hedonist, and be as, 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 as filled with, with pleasure as much as you can, because eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. You know what it also means, if that's true? If this is all there is, it means nobody is going to right the wrongs that have been done. It means nobody is going to restore what was lost. But here's what I think. I think for most of us, we don't believe that. Even if you're not a Christian, I, I think deep down you don't believe that either. And here's how I know. Here's just one piece of evidence. I can't go into Here's one piece of evidence. Look at all the great stories that have been told throughout the ages. Look at all the movies and books and stories that have been told that people love. 
Yes, there's, there's adventure, right? There's a hero, there's an antagonist and a protagonist, right? There's, there's great risk, there's sadness, there's evil being done. But in the end, there's a great rescue, sometimes even a resurrection. There's happy endings, right? As bad as an evil person is, as bad as Thanos is, you ha- we have to be able to beat him. There has to be a way for the Marvel heroes to win, Most of us love these stories because deep down we long for it to be true. We long for a happy ending. And that's why those are blockbuster hits. Some of you are thinking, well, I'm a, I'm a true literary critic. I, I don't like happy endings. Okay, fine. You watch them because it's a break from reality. But listen, most of us, we, we like those stories. We read those novels, those stories, because we, we long for that to be true. If you're trusting in the resurrection of Jesus, every happy ending that you see and and listen and read, every happy ending reminds you that is what you have to look forward to. You see, the resurrection of Jesus guarantees the resurrection of every believer in Jesus Christ. The resurrection is good news because Jesus in his body took the sting of death for us. Death dealt its blow on Jesus and Jesus absorbed it and he beat it. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says we can boast in the face of death. He says, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Christian, look at me right now. I don't care what you're doing in your house. Pick up that tablet, pick up that phone, turn the volume up, listen to me. You don't have to fear death. You can grieve at death. You can lament death, but you don't have to fear it. You can say, you can say with Paul, death, do your worst. You know why? Because death, when you do your worst, the worst thing you can do to me is make me infinitely better than I ever have been before. That's the only thing death can do for a Christian. Because death, in that final moment, gives way to everlasting life with Jesus, with the resurrected Savior, with the reigning King, with the Lamb who was worthy to open the scroll, with the one who conquered the grave, conquered sin, conquered hell, and gives us everlasting life. Everything that he deserves, we deserve now because of faith in Christ. Jesus says, I am with you always the very end. That means no matter how difficult your life here is on earth, the end of your story will be a happy ending. No matter how bad this virus impacts our world, it cannot compare to what Jesus will do when he makes all things new. Listen, the only thing in history that is truly unprecedented is the resurrection of Jesus. It's a historical fact, and it changes everything. And so I just end with this. Do you believe this? Do you believe in the gospel? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sin and rose again to give you new life? Maybe you grew up in a Christian home. Maybe you try to follow the teachings of Christianity. But deep down, you know you don't have a personal relationship with God. 
You've been around it. You've been exposed to it. Maybe you've acted like you have it. But deep down you know you have not given your life to Christ. You still, you're still holding on to it. You still want to be in control. But Jesus says you must come and die to self that he might raise you up so you can truly live. If you try to keep your life, you'll lose it. But if you lay down your life for him, he will raise you up and give you new life right now and forever. And so you have a choice this morning. You can either accept God's gift of forgiveness and eternal life, or you can reject it. You can accept him as Savior, or you can reject him. And you may be thinking, I don't like those choices. I'm just not going to decide right now. And that's fine. But all I have to say is this. Not to decide is to decide. If you know the truth of who God is and what he has done for you, then right now, not deciding is deciding. It's deciding you don't care what Jesus did for you. It's deciding you want to be your own savior. But if you know what God has done, the only appropriate response is to admit, I have turned from you, God. I have thrown rocks. I need a savior and I place my trust in Jesus Christ as my savior today. You see, the resurrection is a gift to all who will receive it. And here's what I'm asking. Receive it. Receive it. Would you pray with me? Father, for all of those who are listening, all around our state, all around this country, I saw people checking in from other states, all around the world even, through the gift of technology, we can all be listening and tracking at the same time at this moment. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. I pray right now, Lord, that you would bring the gift of faith to those who need to cross that line and say, Jesus, I need to trust in you today. If you've never trusted in Christ and today you want to be the first day of the rest of your life, a changed life, forgiven now, past settled, future secure, then wherever you are, here's what I want to ask you to pray in your heart. Lord Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. Jesus, I have turn from sin from you I have sinned and I'm now turning to you I receive you by faith as my savior and king I want to follow you the rest of my days Please help the resurrection to change everything about my life Lord I pray for every Christian who is clinging to the rock of Christ. That in these turbulent times, they know there is an anchor for their soul. God, I pray for them. I pray for us. Keep our hope strong. Remind us that we never walk alone. Remind us that what is happening now is, our, is not our new reality. Remind us that we will gather again soon. And it will be sweeter for this time apart. And Lord, may we not grow weary in doing good. May we be like the disciples as you send us out. Send us out, Lord, to make disciples, 
to, to share the hope, to share the message of Christ, to give of our lives, to sacrifice and to serve for the glory of your name among the nations. Jesus, because you live, we can face tomorrow. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen.